I really think uh, these are really important, and I was with, at dinner with some people uh, who could really benefit from being at something like this. Uh, I was trying to, you know, talk to them about the importance of the mass, and again, just so many people don't understand why we go to mass, what the purpose of it is, and so part of my hope, I guess, is more and more people understanding it, and then they can, you know. <laughs> When they talk, you have conversations with others, you can help, you know, teach people so that they can, can understand. And uh, last week we talked about um, the Eucharist as sacred meal. Uh, we talked about different aspects of that. Um, how we receive Jesus, who we should, should receive Jesus, when we should receive Jesus, um, kind of things regarding that. Today is Eucharist as sacrifice, and I think it's, as I mentioned at Mass, something that is totally misunderstood, and we we miss it um, totally. Uh, it's so important to understand the Eucharist as a sacrifice. The way I, I likened it to, and then I'll get into the book, is this, came, this, this kind of analogy came to me this afternoon. Uh, say you're playing a, a complicated card or board game with younger kids, right? Something that it takes strategy. But maybe your 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 kids or grandkids with you on the side, and so they want to do something, right? So you have them roll the dice. So they're doing something. They roll the dice, but can you really say they're participating if they don't know like the goal of the board game or the strategy <clears throat> or what you know? the numbers actually mean. I kind of liken that to the Mass. Like, a lot of people will say words, sing the hymns, you know, they'll stand and they'll sit when they should. But if you don't actually know what the Mass is, can you actually fully participate? So that, that's key. If you don't know what you're actually doing, what the essence of the Mass is, can you truly be said to participate insofar as can that little kid, even though they rolled a die, in a sense they're doing something, are they really participating if they don't know what they're doing? Okay. Well, let's start with uh, chapter 2, Eucharist as Sacrifice. And what Bishop Barron does is he really kind of lays out the biblical, the historical foundation of um, the Eucharist as a sacrifice. And, or sacrifices uh, in the first place. And I think a very important point, he says there's no communion without sacrifice. And what he means by that is there's no relationship without sacrifice. Ultimately, that'll be the case with God. There's no communion. We can't have any reconciliation. We can't have any real relationship, any communion with them without sacrifice. And he talks about the sacrifice is what does enact that process, the painful process of reconfiguration. All right, so Adam and Eve, through their sin, break us from God, and we have to deal with that through original sin. Um, and constantly, the Israelites, the people, uh, the descendants of Adam and Eve are trying to bring things back together with God through sacrifice. In his love, God cannot allow his fallen world to remain in alienation. Rather, he must do the hard work of drawing it back into communion. And this means that God is continually about the business of 
sacrifice. And I was even thinking about, think about even the human relationships. <laughs> there is to be communion, there has to be sacrifice among each other. Especially if there is an actual like, break and disunity. There needs to be some sort of sacrifice. You know, It's not like um, Ben and Morgan, if they're fighting, um, Ben's going to kill a goat and say, okay, now we are reconciled. <laughs> but some sort of, you know, um, you know, apology is, would be considered a sacrifice or, you know, buying Morgan flowers or something, you know. It's a, in a sense, a, some sort of sacrifice. So we can even see that at the human level that um, sacrifice is necessary for communion amongst persons. How much more so with God? Um, I like what he says on the next page and page 37, I articulated um, two-thirds, or a third of the way down, I articulated above is, sorry, when the two aspects of the Eucharist meal and sacrifice are separated, the biblical principle I articulated above is compromised. All right? And the mass can devolve into something less than fully serious. There can be no communion without sacrifice. And thus there is no Eucharistic table that is not at the same time an altar. It's almost impossible, if you're really stressing the Mass as a sacrifice, to have the Mass devolve into silly, silly season, right? You can all maybe experience, you know, through your history, your time of being Catholic, gone to some church, and you're like, is this Catholic? <laughs> And it would never be because it stresses sacrifice too much. It would be because there's no sense of sacrifice at all. It's more of just community, you know. So I think that's important. What he says here is that um, if there, if meal and sacrifice are separated, then the mass can devolve into something less than fully serious. And I think that's a big thing. It's we've lost the 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 seriousness of what the Mass is in many places uh, within the Catholic Church. So it goes into sacrifice in the Old Testament. First of all, I would, I would want to say, not even the Old Testament. So this is Plutarch. He was a kind of historian, uh, 1st century A.D., beginning of 2nd century A.D. And he wrote this. He said, you may find cities without walls, without literature, without the arts and sciences of civilized life. But a people without God, without prayers, without religious oaths, without religious rites and sacrifices, is nowhere to be seen. So you can find groups of people all over the history of mankind, you know, and yeah, some of them more or less civilized, but you'll never find any group without some sort of sacrifices, some sort of altar, some sort of priests. Okay. It's innate in us, <laughs> human human nature, human beings to offer sacrifice, to want to communicate some way um, in some way with our creator. And what we'll see is <clears throat> you have that natural desire and then what God will do especially slowly by slowly is reveal to the descendants of Adam and Eve, Abraham, the Israelites how those sacrifices are to be offered. What they're supposed to look like. Okay, so sacrifice in the Old Testament. Um, some of the, the things he talks about. Um, 
Adam and Eve, and then Abel. Um, remember in the, and I'll kind of go back and forth, the Eucharistic prayer, so there's four of them, and I usually on Sunday say Eucharistic prayer one, it's called the canon. And there's a part of it, if you remember, be pleased to look upon these offerings with a serene and kindly countenance, and to accept them as once you're pleased to accept the gifts of your servant Abel, the just. The sacrifice of Abraham, our father in faith, and the offering of your high priest Melchizedek, a holy sacrifice of spotless faith. Okay? So we see in the Mass, we references these good sa- good sacrifices offered at the old in the Old Testament. These are what they did as best they could, what God wanted. And God received these sacrifices. And so in the Mass, we're saying, you know, we're, we're offering, you know, Heavenly Father, accept those as well. So we hear about Adam, and we, maybe we hear about Abel, then Noah, um, Abraham. Um, and then the, the next thing with, with Abraham on page 41, at the top of it. The idea in itself is relatively simple, though it was express, expressed in a wide variety of ceremonies and practices. Some part of the earth is returned to the divine principle, offered up, in order to establish communion with the sacred power. Okay. There's this idea of destroying something that's alive, or wasting something, acknowledging that God is the creator of an author of life. By us doing that, we're acknowledging, okay, I'm not totally in charge, God is the author of life, and so killing the goat, the lamb, um, even, you know, certain burnt offerings, like burning wheat, okay? Uh, these offerings acknowledging God as the author of, of life and death. Uh, one of the greatest kind of examples of and calling of sacrifices, Abraham and his son Isaac. Remember the, the story of that? Abraham takes his only son... <laughs> He's supposed to have the blessings come through Isaac. Uh, descendants, a promise of the land, all these, these, these great blessings are supposed to come through Isaac. Yet God asks him to sacrifice Isaac. So imagine that kind of sense of... Um, there was a, a huge, not just psychological, um, but a theological kind of... Um, you know, crisis that Abraham had to go through. So he, he takes his son. First of all, a little kind of study of this. Isaac was probably like mid to late teens, okay? All right, and he's carrying the wood up the hill. And he says, Father, we've got the, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for sacrifice? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb. They get up there, and the text says that Isaac is tied to the wood, and Abraham's about to, to kill him with a knife. Now, think about this. Abraham's very old. This is teens, late teens, young man. He had to be willing, when you think about this, to be a part of this. <laughs> you know, old man can't, can't force a guy tie him up like that at that age. So, in some sense, Isaac is a willing participant in the sacrifice. 
and God, the angel of God, stops Abraham from killing his son. And then what do they see in the, the brush? A ram. A ram. Is a ram a lamb? A lamb is not a ram. A ram is a ram, not a lamb. And so they kill the ram and sacrifice the ram. So you still have that idea that the lamb is still, the, in a sense, what God wanted initially was not fulfilled because it was not a lamb. Obviously, we, have, we see that fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the Lamb of God who will um, be sacrificed. Any questions on Abraham and Isaac? Or any other thoughts or additions to that? I know it's something that different Bible studies have studied and talked about. But there's a lot of neat kind of you know, correlations, right? We talk about typology. Typology means there's things in the past that point to the thing in the future. The thing in the future is the real thing. The archetype. Christ is always the archetype. Or baptism is the archetype of the Israelites going through the Red Sea. Right? That's typology. Things that happen in the past and point to the future. And typology is so important. Um, and I think Bishop Barron talks about it at some point in here. Because typology prepares us. If we didn't have the Old Covenant, if we didn't have typology... You have this man called Jesus of Nazareth. All right, here, I'm the Messiah. Like, what? <laughs> There's no, you need preparation to know what to kind of expect, right? And so typology, all the old covenant, is God preparing us for Jesus Christ. Um, Isaac, he carries the wood, right? Isaac is a type of Jesus Christ, <laughs> carrying the wood as he did carrying the cross. Um, and there's other other things. Oh, the, the other thing interesting, too, like I said, uh, Abraham says to Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb. And it can actually be interpreted, uh, the Hebrew, God himself, God will provide himself as the lamb, even, it could be interpreted that. Which he does, right? With Jesus. Okay. So we have Abraham. Um, we have, we come to um, the Passover lamb. Uh, the blood is, the Passover lamb is killed. Blood put on the doorway. They're allowed to, um, their kids are about allowed to live and they're able to escape through Red Sea into uh, the desert. Um, we come to the mountain. Next kind of sacrifice with Moses, right? Giving him the Ten Commandments and the law. And this is page 46. Bishop Barron says, the idea behind this practice is straightforward enough. The splashing of the blood on the people signaled God's pledge of fidelity to them. And the splashing on the altar represented Israel's reciprocal pledge of fidelity to Yahweh. So in a sense, the altar represents God, so they're splashing the altar represents God. And then they're also splashing them, the people, uh, symbolizing God, ratifying it with, with them. of fidelity to Yahweh, each saying to the other, in effect, quote, as this blood is poured out, so will my life be poured out for you. Next page, 47. We talk about King David. And they would set up the temple. Uh, King Solomon would build the temple finally. And centuries and centuries, they would offer sacrifices in the temple until 8070 or 70 A.D. 
but it was destroyed by the Romans. <clears throat> Thus, for nearly 1,000 years, the Israelite nation ratified its covenant with Yahweh through the slaughter of beasts and the smoke of holocausts. Uh, it's kind of a side note. We need to realize, especially when it comes to relationships with our um, Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, that Judaism now is much different than the time of Christ and before, right? It's, it's called rabbinical Judaism now. There's no sacrifices being offered, right? Because there's no temple, right? So it's, it's, it's a much different thing, especially when people talk about um, there's some misunderstood and misconceptions about like the end times, and some of our Protestant brothers and sisters believe that you know Israel is a big part of it, and that needs to be reestablished, you know, for God to come back, da 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 da, da. and um, to realize that the Israelite, the Jewish religion now is much different than it was before. There's no sacrifices, okay? Um, it's rabbinical Judaism now, and it's fitting, right? Because Jesus Himself. Are you bringing, or is that me? Okay. I just don't want to make sure it's me. Um, that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, so there's no need for any more sacrifice. That's why there's no need for the temple anymore. Uh, I think we talked about last week with uh, the early Christians. Uh, very, very quickly, yeah, they would still go to the synagogue for the readings and the preaching and stuff, but they, they didn't partake in the temple sacrifices because they saw that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the temple sacrifices. What else do I want to talk about here? Um, we go to page 51. We talk about, we hear about Isaiah and this future um, suffering servant. Dorothy, can you turn it off? I sure will. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. Um, that Isaiah, the suffering servant, that the Messiah is, is not supposed to become a, a kingly Messiah in which he uh, builds up an army and kills all the Romans and has this great nation of, of peace, but rather he's a suffering servant. And so at the, at the bottom of 51 and top of 50, or 50, bottom of 50 and top of 51, this suffering servant is presented in short, as a sacrificial figure who will, on behalf of the entire nation, offer himself for the sins of the many. Right? And so the idea of all of this is that covenant needs sacrifice. Communion needs sacrifice. And it's ultimately in Jesus Christ um, who will do it. Oh, this is where I got that. So bottom of 51, without a properly Israelite preparation, and I would call that typology, most of the Christological language of the New Testament and the dogmatic tradition remains opaque. Again, we wouldn't really understand who Jesus is uh, as the Christ, what that means, if we didn't have um, the history and the, the lead-up and the preparation of the Old Covenant. He talks about here Marcion. I don't know if that's later or if I already passed that part. But Marcion was a dude who in the early church saw too much of a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he would say, oh, there was an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. And the Old Testament, we just got to get rid of it now. 
because we have we have Christ. And um, the early church said, no, <laughs> that's part of it, and we need it. And we, we see that, that we need the typology, we need the preparation to understand who Jesus is. And we know what John the Baptist does. He points to Jesus and literally says, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. In the middle of fifth or a third down and page 53, there is no other reason for the Son of God to be born than that he could be fixed to a cross. Um, I think Fulton J. Sheen put it this way, that Jesus, all of us were born to live. Jesus was the only one who was born to die. Born to die. To give his life in that way. Um, again, talks about uh, the Gospels and Jesus um, fulfilling that. We go to uh, the bottom of 59. Or maybe there's a third down. This is why the sacrificial death of Jesus is pleasing to the Father. Though it has in recent years been lampooned as advocating a type of divine child abuse, the doctrine of atonement stands at the heart of Jesus, of Christian faith and proclamation. The Father sent his Son into God-forsakenness, into the morass of sin and death, not because he delighted in seeing his son suffer, but rather because he wanted his son to bring the divine light to the darkest place. There's a concept in Protestant theology called um, penal substitution. Penal substitution. Penal meaning punishment, substitution. And that we deserve punishment. And so what Jesus does is, is he actually is the one to be punished instead of us. So, God the Father is so angry, and he's angry with us, and he just wants to beat us and destroy us, and instead of beating and destroying us, uh, he sends his son, and he beats on his innocent son, and that makes him happy, and we're okay. That's not what we believe, okay? (laughs) But it's not just, right? It's not just to um, punish an innocent person. So what is, how does that work then with Christ? How does his sacrifice bring communion? Well, we need to look at at what Christ does as an offering of something good. His life. um, Out of love. Okay, That's what is of value. You can offer something of good, of value, so that um, in place of someone someone else being uh, penalized or disciplined and stuff. It's not the Father... I need to take out my wrath on someone, so it's going to be Jesus. But rather, Jesus offers something good himself in place of that. Um, Bishop Barron puts it this way. Um, it is not the agony of the Son in itself that pleases the Father, but rather the Son's willing obedience in offering his body as a sacrifice in order to take away the sin of the world. So that's, that's important for us to realize. Uh, we don't believe in penal substitution, but that the son... Yeah? You can finish with that. No, that's what... It's, um, well, based on like what you were talking about, I thought 
This is going back to the chapter one, yep. one of the parts that Mitch Barron talked about that I really found interesting. And I think it was around page seven. Uh, he was just talking about that. I think ties in how he talks about how God is going to battle for us. Um, and I don't know. I guess I just found that interesting. And kind of how you're talking about now, how he's not just the punished God. It's actually yep. him going into this for us to yep. help bring us back to what we need. Yeah. Yeah. In a, in a sense, yeah, that we can't make this communion on our own. All the Old Testament sacrifices didn't do it. Okay, Christ had to do it um, himself. And then this is, I mean, Bishop Barron does a, a long time establishing that, and then he has a few pages on the, the Eucharist or the Mass as sacrifice. And so that's what I want to kind of spend the majority of my time on um, the Eucharist as sacrifice. And the key is, I think, to realize that maybe we'll start with page 64. So page 64, about a fourth of the way down. Martin Luther and the other reformers objected strenuously to the claim that the Mass was a sacrifice. Luther argued that Christ's great sacrifice was once and for all, and that if we consequently arrogate to ourselves the prerogative of repeating it, we are guilty of dangerous spiritual presumptuousness, or in his language, righteousness of works. The Mass, he concluded, is something that is received, not offered by us. What we have just said about the time-transcending quality of Jesus' act goes a long way toward dissolving Luther's criticism. Okay, so Luther doesn't believe that the Eucharist is a sacrifice. And I will start with this question. How do we know that the cross is a sacrifice? When Jesus was on the cross, how do we know that that is a sacrifice? Yeah. It was given willingly. And okay. Kind of a... Okay, what, what's evidence that it was given willingly, though? How do we know that? <clears throat> Okay, garden. All right. I think that that's that's a good hint. I think there's better one a little bit before that. So let maybe just put a little bit more uh, color to this. Them, your average Roman walking past those three crosses on that, that Friday, two thousand years ago. They would have not have said, hey, that's a sacrifice. Why do we say, oh, that's Jesus saving the world as a sacrifice? Kind of close. What anticipated Good Friday so that we would know that Good Friday is a sacrifice? Passover? The Last Supper. Yeah, the Last Supper, which was a Passover. What did Jesus say at that last meal? Yeah, take this, eat my body, okay, given for you. Drink my blood poured out for you. Again, as I said last week, like that totally goes off script from the normal Passover, you know, rubrics, if you will. But they would they have really understood? <laughs> what what do you mean flesh given? What do you mean blood poured out? Okay. So I think they still wouldn't really have understood. Fast forward a day later. Oh, that's what Jesus is talking about. Okay. 
So, this is a beautiful thing. Holy Thursday and Good Friday go together. You can't have one without the other. You cannot have one without the other. Um, there's a, a talk, I didn't think to get it up, by Scott Hahn, that... What do we mean by the New Testament? The New Testament, we think, oh, that's that's your Bible, right? That's the second part of the Bible. That's the New Testament. Well, what the Bible actually calls the New Testament isn't a bunch of books or words or letters, but it's actually a ritual, a mass. What does Jesus say? This is the new covenant in my blood. The reason we call these books the new covenant, <laughs> the New Testament, that's testament is the translation in Latin of, of covenant, is because it talks about the new covenant. <laughs> so interesting enough. Um, basically, to go back, the only reason we know Good Friday is not an execution is because of Holy Thursday. The only, way, only thing that makes Holy Thursday more than just some gobbledygook words is Good Friday. It puts meat on the bones. They're like, okay. So they go together. You can't have Holy Thursday with, and Good Friday. You can't have them with one without the other. They go uh, together. And so even Luther, even all Christians would say, yeah, of course that's a sacrifice. Okay? But Jesus said that at the Last Supper, right? And at that Last Supper, he gave us a way to memorialize that and to repeat that sacrifice. Do this in memory of me. And it was all the way until Luther, in the 16th century, all Christians believed that the Mass was a sacrifice and offering. And so I'm going to look a little bit more into that now. Um, one verse that I think is very important biblically as foreshadowing the Mass is actually from the prophet of Malachi. So this is Old Testament Malachi. Chapter 1, uh, verse 11. Malachi prophesies, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Our nations? Is that Jewish people? No, that's everyone. That's the Gentiles. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. All right. So Malachi is prophesying that not just Jews, Israelites, but all of the world will offer sacrifice to their name. And from our tradition, the Church Fathers always read that being fulfilled in the Mass. Um, in the Mass, all of the world, all the Gentiles are able to offer um, this sacrifice. The importance of Holy Thursday and Good Friday. Uh, Good Friday is just an execution without Holy Thursday, but without... Good Friday, Holy Thursday is just a bunch of gobbledygook and uh, empty words. Um, and he ends that chapter talking about referencing again each and every one of your roles because you're baptized as priests to offer the sacrifice. And so I kind of took some parts of what I think is important about the Mass and uh, referencing the fact that you all are priests as well and for us to, to realize that. So, first of all, for a sacrament 
a sacrifice to be a sacrament or a meal, uh, you have to have a sacrifice. How do you get a steak? You have to kill the cow. Right? How do we have communion? How do we have the meal of Christ's body and blood? He has to be sacrificed first. Okay, That's what we believe happens at every Mass. There's an offering of sacrifice, and the fruit of that is communion, literally the sacrament of his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Um, uh, I mentioned, hinted at before, that we have a need as human beings to offer sacrifice, just for us to be just. Just means giving another that which is their due. When we're younger, we owe our parents obedience. We call that filial piety. When we owe our nation something, we call that patriotism. To be a virtuous person, you've got to be just. You've got to give another what, there's, what is their due. For us to be a good human person in relationship to God, to be a just person, we have to be religious. That means giving God his due. And just by nature of who God is and we are, that means worship. That means ultimately sacrifice. Again, we destroy something. We give something acknowledging God as creator. And slowly by slowly through the Old Testament, with the Old Covenant with his people, he revealed to them how he wanted those sacrifices to be offered. Until you get to Jesus and he gives us the definitive way he wants to be worshipped, the most perfect sacrifice, which is the Mass. Do this in memory of me. The God-man, God himself, incarnate, shows us, tells us how he is to be worshipped. And I want to get into it, but yeah, it would take centuries then to have that be enculturated, the church guided by the Holy Spirit in different cultures, you know, adding more to it than just take and eat. This is my body, take and drink, this is my blood. All right? But the essence of how we are to be worshipped or how God is to be worshipped, is given to us by God himself at the Last Supper. Do this in memory of me. And so if we come from that idea of we owe this to God to be a just person, I think it's so freeing. Then we come to Mass and like, okay, I'm going to be a just and virtuous person. I am going to offer the holy sacrifice of the Mass to, to God the Father. If I come with that attitude, then it's not like, okay, I really want to get something out of this. I hope I hear some good music. Um, I hope I feel good. Um, and it's so much freer because you're not a, coming about yourself. You're coming to offer yourself to God. And we know, obviously, for us who get to receive Holy Communion, you do get something. <laughs> you can't get any more than Jesus. But the most important thing is come with the right attitude of being to offer stuff. And I think so many so many people have stopped coming to Mass because they come with a selfish attitude. And I don't think they do it intentionally or it's malicious, but just by the way we look at things. Oh, what's in it for me? I'm only going to do something if I get something out of it. And therefore, over decades, uh, I don't get anything out of it, so what's the point in going? Whereas if we realize, no, it's not the point to get something out of it. The point is to offer the Mass because you owe it to God. Then, then we are left with a, a pure conscience. We left with, with peace. Why? Because I did what it was called what I was called to do. With offering myself united with that sacrifice. It's one of the biggest things I've been trying to 
themes over and over, you know, at the Mass and teachings and preaching and writing is helping us understand that. It's so important. So let's talk about the Mass as sacrifice. Um, Jesus, in a sense, has a natural presence right now. That's him in heaven, okay, where Jesus is bodily, okay, heaven. But he can have a sacramental presence, and that's what happens at the Mass. All right, he becomes sacramentally present. It's not, it's not any less real. It's a different type of presence. Though, right? He becomes present here. We have the Mass as the same sacrifice as what Jesus did on the cross. We call it a representation or a making present. Okay, Who was the priest on, at Calvary? Who was the priest at Calvary offering the sacrifice? Jesus. Jesus. Okay. Who was the priest at Mass here? You. Well, in the Jesus. Jesus. Okay, Jesus is the priest. Who is the victim? <laughs> Jesus. Jesus. Who is the victim at Mass? Jesus. Jesus. Who received the offering on Calvary? God the who receives the offering at the Mass? So the Mass is the same in that way. How is it different? Jesus was a priest on, on Calvary, Good Friday. But here now, it's not just him. He incorporates his whole mystical body. We're part through our baptism. We're part of him. Right? So it was da solo, Jesus totally alone on Calvary. At the Mass, though, he incorporates his entire body as priest. Who is the victim at the Mass? Well, Jesus. Uh, same thing uh, at Calvary. Jesus at the Mass, but again, he incorporates his body. We're all a part of that. Me acting in the, the head of Christ, the head of the body. You all acting in the body of the body. And God the Father, um, same each. So we say the Mass is, the only difference is that it is... Jesus uniting himself with his entire mystical body, whereas on Calvary it was just himself. And it's offered in an unbloody way. Right? We're not killing Jesus again. There's no, there's no what we call immolation. Immolation, a killing of a victim. All right? On Calvary it was a real immolation. At the Mass, we can call it an, a mystical immolation. So what do I, I mean by that? Um, we have something called uh, the double consecration. I hinted at this last week. The reason why there's bread and wine, two consecrations, is yes, to have something to eat and drink, the meal idea, but ultimately it's to mystically show the immolation, the death of Christ. Right? By having, again, the body, the, the bread is body, blood, soul, and divinity. The, the chalice is body, blood, soul, and divinity. But we can say per se in itself, or uh, we can still talk about the host as the body and what's in the chalice as the blood, right? And so that separation resembles or symbolizes the death of Christ, the separation of blood from flesh. Right, so we have a mystical immolation at the Mass. Not a real immolation, Jesus not dying again, but a mystical immolation. That's what that double 
consecration does. Um, And ultimately, it's us offering Jesus present there, mystically immolated, but alive to the Father. So it's again, it's offering something of value, something good to the Father. And he accepts that. We call the Mass um, propitiatory. Propitiatory. In itself, it is propitiatory, meaning it's pleasing to God. It can do something. It can affect. God is pleased by this offering. Um, Propitiatory. Um, It's pleasing to God. And because of that, he uses this occasion of this offering to give us grace. So the way I liken to it, again, Jesus on the cross, he won infinite merits. It's once and for all sacrifice. Okay, But we have to have those merits, those graces applied to us in different ways at different times. It's like the same thing, God suffered and died, but we have to be baptized to have that applied to us. The Mass is a way that we get to tap into all those graces and blessings that he's won for us. So that's the way that God chose. Do this in memory of me. He, this is the way that he wants to be able to bestow his blessings upon us. By you, us offering the sacrifice, he says, okay, I'm going to bless you in this way. The, the two main reasons for the Mass, we say, is the glorification of God and the sanctification of Of man, and this is this happens as glorification by the offering of the sacrifice. So we glorify God, and from that offering, God blesses us. He bestows His grace upon us. Um, I was watching a video kind of preparing for this and St. Thomas Aquinas, he says that at the Mass, Christ is fully present. So that includes the full power of his passion. So what Christ did on Calvary, it's not like separate from him. That's who he is. He has all that within him. And if Christ is fully present at the Mass, then that presence includes the full power of what he did on the cross. And therefore, we get to receive those, those blessings by offering that, that sacrifice, offering Jesus alive to God the Father. Again, what we offered at, at the Mass is not Jesus dead uh, 2,000 years ago, not Jesus walking around, but Jesus is alive. Right? And we don't kill him, but it's the offering um, to the Father. The way I... I've used this example before. It's Christmas at the Nelsons. I'm the oldest of six. Sister's a year younger than me, Melissa. And so when we were maybe 12, 13, we'd get our money together, we'd go to the store, we'd get a gift. We'd get a card. We'd come back, we'd wrap the gift. We'd get the card, we'd write something nice on there. But then we'd have our other siblings sign the card. Even the little youngest, Rosie, you know, sign her name, hold her hand. Okay, Christmas comes, 
we give that gift to my parents. And the parents, my parents, you know, they wouldn't just go, oh, thank you, Nick and Melissa. You did all the work. They'd say thank you to all the kids. Again, that's like the mass. Jesus did all the work, <laughs> yet we get to offer it, and we get, in a sense, credit for that offering. God looks at us as, as the ones offering the Mass, and he's, he blesses us in that way. Um, you guys are familiar with some Eucharistic miracles, right? I think someone asked that before. I think Marie maybe did about, um, we need to talk more about Eucharistic miracles. And again, what I, what I said about that is Eucharistic miracles, they, they're kind of a shot in the arm to us to say, hey, it can be hard to believe that what this, this host that looks like bread really is Jesus. But here's a miracle over here. So kind of believe that. Believe with faith that that is Jesus. Well, I was kind of thinking about Padre Pio. So Padre Pio, his mass, he actually experienced it as if he was on the cross, like true suffering, okay? This is what he said. I never tire of standing so long and could not become tired because I am not standing, but I am on the Christ, on the cross with Christ suffering with him. The Holy Mass is a sacred union of Jesus and myself. I suffer unworthily. All that was suffered by Jesus who deigned to allow me to share in his great enterprise of human redemption. Someone asked him, Padre, what is your Mass? And he said, a sacred blending with the passion of Jesus. My responsibility is unique in the world. Father, what must I read in your Mass? He responded, all of Calvary. Padre, tell me everything you suffered during the Mass. Everything that Jesus suffered in his passion, I suffer also. Right? So what I was thinking about that is similar to Eucharistic miracles is that in Padre Pio's math, Mass, it's God saying like, hey, what is being happening at Mass truly is the representation of, of Christ's suffering. It has all the power of his passion. And so look at what Padre Pio, his Mass, see in a sense how he's suffering and believe that every Mass, even by that silly old priest in Cloquet, Father Nick, that still is the mass of great value being offered. Right? And so it's kind of neat to, to realize that, that the full power of the mass, of Jesus' passion, is present in the Eucharist because Jesus is there. Let's take a, a second. Yeah, Kim? Yeah. Yeah, with Luther. Well, Luther with a sacrifice, and but Luther. No, Luther rejected sacrifice. Sorry, he rejected as a sacrifice for sure. Luther believed and believed in, in a sense, a form of the real presence. So there's a famous debate where he's sitting across the table with Zwingli. 
Zwingli was one of the reformers who believed it was just the symbol. Okay? And he had some book or something. And, uh, and it was kind of like sand, I guess, on the table for him, if I remember correctly. And they're debating, you know, whether it is true presence or not. And at some point, Luther took out the book and under, and or maybe he wrote or was already there and said, "Hic est corpus meum." <laughs> this is my body, <laughs> right from Scripture. And he's like Zwingli. Jesus said, "This is my body." So Luther, eventually Lutherans would develop their theology and they would be consubstantiation. We talked about that I think last week that the bread and Jesus are there at the same time, um, but it goes away when. The people leave. Okay, so he believed in some sort of real presence, but definitely the biggest, I think, the biggest change between Luther and us is mass as a sacrifice. And this is what I would say as well. It's all it's all related because he rejected the priesthood. How is that? How is that convenient for him? Well. If Mass isn't a sacrifice, then you don't need priests. <laughs> if Mass is a sacrifice, then you need priests. And so it's all kind of related in his rejection of the church, Mass is a sacrifice, rejection of the priesthood. Then he didn't, didn't have to worry about having priests because it wasn't a sacrifice being offered at the Mass. It was just a minister, you know, kind of um, memorializing remembering it. Is it question yeah. but does they get off because of like scripture because oftentimes other Protestant groups they're all about scripture word for word and I mean like when we when you say do this in memory of me yeah. like is the word memory throwing people off in the sense of like it's yeah like that could be a part of it yeah, and I, I think it was his his reasoning, a misunderstanding of Christ's death, thinking like, okay, that's the once and for all sacrifice. Therefore, we have, we don't. If that is truly all and ful, ful, like satisfactory and perfect, why should there be any other sacrifice? We would say, well, God, we need <laughs> we need as humans to offer sacrifice of our nature. Um, not that God needs the sacrifice, but we have need to do it. And just in our tradition and led, you know, guided by the Holy Spirit, the Mass has always been seen as a sacrifice. So you can, just like so many different topics, you can kind of pick verses out and you can, you know, so I can kind of speculate maybe like why, you know, what verses he would have used and, you know, to argue that way. But the main thing is he was disobedient and didn't want he wanted to lead, do his, his own thing and um, a lot of it's and I'd have to think about the, the kind of logical order but um, I think the main one, the main starting was his own talk I made about Luther but his own, he had a psychological issue overly scrupulous uh, he wanted absolute certainty that he was going to heaven, no matter what. 
And you can't, we don't have that. None of us have that. Hate to break it to you. We can know our state of relationship now with God, but that will endure. And so he wanted absolute certainty. And so he found this idea that all you need is faith, faith alone, and that's it. And other things kind of logically uh, flowed from that. But, um, and I would think that sacrifice, massive sacrifice flowed from that too because if you're once saved, always saved, why do you need more sacrifice? Jesus did it once and for all. So maybe that's part of it. Okay. But as a priest, yeah. you would have remembered the scripture where Jesus said, whoever eats my body and drinks my blood, yeah. and then all those people left and he asked the apostles, are you going to leave? Yeah. Too. We didn't say um, this is just, I just, you know, a yeah. figure of speech. So could Luther have been the beginning towards the beginning of the satanic infiltration of the church to drive people away? Maybe. I, I don't know. I think Satan has been there from the beginning. So I don't, you know, different points. Um, but, yeah, like I was saying before, I think he had some sort of belief in the real presence. Even to be arguing with other reformers who argued that it was only a symbol. Um, and so maybe yeah, maybe next week especially when we talk about the actual uh, Eucharist as more than a symbol, we can get more into that. What's yeah. well, that one to So we look at the Mass... There's these two main movements. Exitus and reditus. What does exit mean? Okay. What do you think reditus means? Yeah, so at the offertory, we take the bread and the wine, which we received from God. So it comes from God, and we offer it back to Him. And it comes back to us as Jesus. And then we offer Jesus. This is the Father God. Back to the Father. Alright, so we receive the bread, the wine. We don't, it's from God. We offer it back to Him. So that he can give it back to us as the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. And then we offer Jesus to the Father. Right? As the victim. Does that make sense? As you choose and ready to choose. So it's a beautiful, that's what's happening at the Mass. Um, we offer God this bread and this wine so that it can become Jesus. So we can have, we can offer Jesus, the living Christ, to God the Father and 
all and receive all the blessings and the graces that come from that offering. Again, we we offer the sad glorification of God, and from that offering, we are being sanctified. We are being made holy. All right, the rest of the time. I want to talk about something that a little more controversial, but I think very important. And one of the reasons I think why we don't understand the Mass as sacrifice, and that's the way the Mass is offered. And it comes between uh, the orientations ad orientum. Or versus populum. Ad means towards, orientum, the orient or east. Okay. And versus towards the people. So this means ultimately uh, it can be geographically towards the east and there's a time where there's a real intention of always building churches so that they face the east, east-west why? because that's the way that scripture talks about the Lord returning from the east okay, the sunrise, the east, the Lord will return at the end of time and so we're kind of waiting in anticipation looking that way for Christ to return versus populum towards the people what's more important though in ad orientum, more so than geographically, right? Because otherwise we would be facing this way, right, church? <laughs> east is that way, not that way. Is what we call the liturgical east. The liturgical east. The liturgical east means everyone's facing the same direction at certain parts of the Mass. Whereas versus populum means towards the people, always towards the people. And for centuries... The Mass was only offered, it was ad orientum. So the times when the priest was addressing God the Father, he faced in the same direction that the people were. So they were all facing the same direction. Uh, in the decades following, uh, in the 60s, 70s, the option or the possibility of the priest always facing the people was was allowed and actually ended up becoming the norm. Okay? And the main point I want to say tonight is every Mass is a sacrifice, whether the priest is facing ad orientum or versus populum. Whether, you know, it's in a big cathedral or it's at Evergreen Knoll. There's single money. Go there once a month off. It's always a sacrifice. The Mass is always a sacrifice. But which, how we offer the Mass, what orientation, for example, best signifies a sacrifice?
what best signifies the sacrifice? And I would argue that adoriantum best signifies the reality <coughs> taking place. Let's talk about some of these, these, these realities. Why? Well, um, when we are just facing each other the entire time, that's partially where the whole idea of the meal became overemphasized. Okay, we're together. We're around this table, right? Versus us doing something together as offering of a sacrifice. Um, because the offering of sacrifice is always to someone else. And when we're facing the same direction, right, this signifies better that there's something, a movement here, a dynamic, that doesn't just stop at the altar, doesn't just stop at the priest. Whereas when you're watching me and the altar's here, there's just kind of like this, kind of this uh, abrupt kind of stop of, of movement, of the dynamic. There is no continuation. Whereas, priest is facing the same way. You can sense that there's something going on here, that a movement to the priest and then and, um, past the priest. So the argument is that that best signifies the sacrificial nature of that. So I think that's the most important reason for it. But there's other ones. One, the priest is a mediator. So there's times where he speaks on behalf of the people to God, and there's times where he speaks on behalf of the people, of, on behalf of God to the people. So when I say, Lord be with you, I'm speaking on behalf of God to the people. <clears throat> when I'm saying certain prayers, those are to the Father. But a lot of times we don't realize that. We think it's basically just <laughs> the priest talking to us the whole time. Whereas if the priest is actually turning his direction, that can help us um, interiorize and understand who he's actually referring. You know, and is he is he acting as mediator now from people to the to God, or mediator from God to the people? And those that turning uh, can be helpful. Also, I think it actually emphasizes and builds up the laity's role as priest more. Who has ever been to theater for a play or something? Okay. Right. Who has ever played a sport, a game? Okay. Right. In the reality of what the Mass is, and your role in it as priests, which is more fitting? Or which is more alike? You playing a, a sport like a football game or hockey? Or are you sitting in a crowd watching a play? Which is the mass supposed to be more like? Play. Yeah. Because you're a role too. You're not just expected. Okay. And so even think of a sporting game. If you're going, you're on the football field, you're all facing the same way. Going to the goal. Or hockey. Going to the goal the same way. Whereas it's the theater that you're, you're sitting there, you're watching that. I am, if you're in a theater, you have no role to play. I'm not acting in it. I'm just watching it. But most of our churches are set up that way. But that's not really what our role is at the Mass. Our role is actually as a player. <laughs> and 
it would make sense to be actually part of that action. Based in the same way, going up the mountain of the Lord together. So, Father, why yeah. aren't we set up that way? <clears throat> because, because at this point we're not ready for it. Yeah. I'll say more. Why did it change? Um, I don't know if you noticed, I think in, even in this chapter, Bishop Barron suggested that there was an overemphasis on the sacrifice. I don't know if I would agree with that, but that's part of, you know, the church we've had these pendulum swings. Okay? And I forget where it was in there, but he said that, that that was part of the reason. I don't know about that. I think there was some Protestantization that kind of got into the church and this desire to be more ecumenical and more relatable to, you know, and acceptable, you know, to our other Christian brothers and to be more like, so I think that was part of it. A desire to, and I think it was, there was already a movement in the church before the Second Vatican Council to help people understand more about what the Mass is going on and doing. Um, because they, the church already kind of understood, like, people aren't really participating, but not because they don't know what to do or whatever, it's they don't know what's going on as much. So there's a way of trying to get them to understand what was going on more, um, but there's a lot of people said, well, no, actually, participation, a misunderstanding of participation, I think. We need to get people to do more. That's what we need to participate. So we need more lectors. We need more extraordinary ministers of the Holy Communion. We need more ushers. We need, you know, we need more things, more of it in English. We need more vocal. Remember, even a lot of the mass before was silently said by the priests, parts of it. Okay. So we just need people to be able to. That's what is necessary to more participate. And I think that there's some of that's true, but again, I think most importantly. The participation is an interior participation. Understanding of an offering being offered and uniting myself with that. And I'll say a little bit more at the end of this how I think we can participate truly and or what the as mass as a sacrifice, what that means for us and how we should do that. But just a few other things. Um, one thing as a priest <laughs> It's 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 it really is a blessing to offer mass ad orientum. Like I can just focus, you know. I don't have to worry about this person running this way or this kid that way. Or um, you know, sometimes your nose is runny, you know, and it's nice to be able to just wipe your nose and have people stare at you. Um, you can really concentrate on the words, and there's a sense of because uh, even even when I'm at mass, like now, I, I'm, I'm it's a constant temptation to think, oh. I have to speed this up. People are waiting for me, or you know, you know, what are they thinking? You know, but there's this, especially when it comes to whenever I do the Latin mass. But just even adirantum helps a little bit. Like, no, I get to just focus here, <laughs> kind of like not worrying about the people. They need to worry about including themselves in this. I don't need to, you know, try to engage them. Like that's not my role, really. That's that was kind of a misunderstanding in the over the decades, is that the priest needs to be the one to get people to, you know, really participate. And he's the presider. He's the, the master of ceremonies, you know, and versus allowing the priest just to offer the Mass and people just 
understanding that and joining them or joining the priest um, with their heart, mind, and soul. Uh, also, even in our current Roman Missal here with all the rules, it presumes that at times the priest is facing a different way than the people. It says things like this. The priest turns towards the people, extending and then joining hands as the peace of the Lord be with you always. It says here, the priest facing the altar says quietly, may the body of Christ keep you safe for eternal life. So, why are those directions in there if he's always facing the same way, right? You wouldn't need that. So it presumes that there is this change. Okay. And the idea is, again, that the priest is sometimes talking on behalf of the people to God, sometimes talking on behalf of God to the people. Um, what was your question? Was it yours, like, why we change? Or, or, or you said, like, ever change? So, in my last parish, um, I think it was, I'd start doing like just the, the Latin Mass on first Saturdays, and then I, I started just doing, um, teaching about it, writing about it, and then I did, I think, first, uh, first Sundays of every month, and then I got to one of the Advents, and we just did it from then on out, um, honoring him. Um, so, right, for here, we've done First Saturday, Honorary Anthem, if you ever came to a First Saturday Mass. Um, and then, uh, so this, this Advent, we're going to do another Candlelight Mass for Rafi Chaley at 6 a.m. So that'll be, and my easy argument for that is, well, you have all those candles. You have to be facing the other way. The other way is the people can't see. <laughs> um, but a uh, couple weeks ago, I asked. Well, first of all, I told Bishop about the first Saturday, and he's fine with that. And then I, I meet with them once a month because of vocations work. So I have a standing meeting with them. And so I, we always do vocations work. And then on my agenda that I create, I say non-vocation items if there's time. So I added um, Adorianta Masses during Advent. And he's, he's really good. Um, first of all, he believes that that can be done more on a local level as long as the people understand and it's done in the right way. Uh, he, I think he's very much about subsidiarity, that you know what's true in one mission field, we've heard that language mission field, isn't true or best for another one. And so he said, like, Father, like, you, you don't need my permission to do this, you know, but I appreciate being a part of the conversation. And uh, so I first proposed to him every week, every week just for Advent. Um, and I, I don't think he understood exactly why I was doing that. Because what I want to do is provide it as a teaching Right, the teaching people experience because most people have an experience. So do it as a teaching thing. And he's always looking at, or he was initially looking at as, well, I want people to have options. You know, so if they don't want to go that, they can go to a, another mass that's versus pulpit or not. Um, 
And so, this is again, my, my point is, I don't want other people to have the option because they don't know what they don't know. <laughs> and people will just dismiss outright, oh, I'm not going to do that. Like, I want to give everyone the opportunity for that. So then I, I asked him, well, so I, he was thinking, well, you could do one, one of the masses that way on a weekend and the other mass is not. Like, no, I want everyone at my parish to experience it. That's my point. So I said, well, how about this compromise? I'll just do it on one of the weekends for Advent. So one of the weekends coming up, we, I will offer mass on Sunday and Saturday on our hands. Um, write about it more and then um, preach about it. And the idea is to give everyone an experience of it and have it in the back of their mind and be familiar with it. And, and we'll see what goes from there in the months from now. But I want people, to everyone, to experience it and to explain it so they understand it. Um, I think a lot of people just don't know. <laughs> they don't know what they don't know. So that's so, yeah, definitely on my mind. And again, I think it's, uh, it's, it's so important about understanding what we are doing at the Mass. It's not about us, it's about offering of a sacrifice, and Adorantum signifies that uh, in the best way. Yeah, Dorothy? Father, I just want to say, you know, this these meetings have been just wonderful. Okay. It's given me, it has given me a better understanding of the Mass. And I wish a book like this was available for you know, everyone. I mean, yeah. just to read it and to, you yeah. know, refer to it yeah. here and there. Yeah. You know, I mean, just thank you so much. Well, you're welcome, Dorothy. I think if you get done with it, maybe you can pass it on to other people, right? So that's mm-hmm. maybe a good yep. thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, did you have your hand up? Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, did you say that I, I must have been not listening very good? Yeah. Odd, odd orientum. Is that in Latin? That's in Latin. That's Latin. Yep. Okay. And I guess my frustration with Latin masses, I guess, I don't know if I speak for anybody else other than me, is that, you know, that's like me standing with my daughter Abigail who knows how to speak Chinese, right? Yeah. And and, uh, and I don't know how to speak Chinese. Yep. And I, and I it, it's just... It's just frustrating, mm-hmm. though, isn't it, for, for that person? It can and be. They, they don't get anything out of it. Yeah. Uh, that's why I've given up going to, going to Latin Mass. Yeah. I've gone to a couple in my life, but yeah. I, I refuse to, to not know. I mean, I know what's going on. See, I that's just, the thing. You do know what's going on. I know what's going on, yeah. I, but I just I can't fully participate. See, so that's where, that's where I think is the the misconception or the misunderstanding is what does it mean to fully participate, right? It's more of ultimately interior participation, not necessarily needing to say every word or hear every word. Um, who has seen Shawshank Redemption? You know that time when he locks himself in the, the room and he has the Italian opera singing, you know? And what does it say? Like, I didn't understand the word that she was saying, but it was the most beautiful thing in the world. Um, it's like there, there's something to that about the Mass. Like, you can have your heart, mind, soul lifted up to God, and that's ultimately what matters, whether or not you understand every little, every word. Um, just, a, just a thing about Latin, we call it a sacred language. Uh, one, the ultimate, because it was affixed to the cross. Okay. 
was on the cross, salvation on uh, on the instrument of salvation. Kim? Um, I was just going to speak to what he was saying. Yeah, in your experience, of, sure. Um, so I don't think a lick of Latin. Yeah. I wish I did, but I don't. But <laughs> I do really, truly appreciate the Latin Mass, and it's solely because of the fact that I feel I pay more attention. Mm-hmm. Because I don't speak Latin, but I grab one of the missalettes that are uh-huh. usually in the back, and what I've learned is it forces me to focus because I find that in, you know, like a normal English mass, I'm so used to what's going on that I actually am not really paying attention anymore. Mm-hmm. So I find in my own experience that now I'm like, I, if I want to know where we're at, I have to follow along. Mm-hmm. I have to kind of understand, even if I get behind, um, especially with priests, like, you know, when they're turning and they're facing God and they're saying those prayers quietly, I may not be where they're at, and I kind of have to sometimes catch up where the gospel reads yep. or the epistles, whatever. And then I'm like, oh, I'm a little behind, but that's okay. Like, I'll keep reading along to make sure. And I find that I appreciate the Mass more because I've, I'm just getting a deeper dive in, which I know everyone's experience is a little different. And even for me, Latin Mass can be sometimes tricky because I usually have to stop because I'm either talking to a small person also has to talk to me yeah. about this math as yeah. well. But um, I can appreciate, um, I'm sorry, I didn't catch your name. Steve. I appreciate Steve's stance yeah. as well. Um, but I guess that's just like a di- from a different perspective. Yeah. I can also really come to like the math. Yeah. yeah. So if you do the math at Orism, <coughs> it doesn't have to be done in Latin? Or no. It can be done in English. Yeah, it will well. be in English, yeah. Yeah, so. then again, again, I want to say, remember, the most important thing about the Mass is us acknowledging that it's a sacrifice and saying, I want to be a part of this. I want to offer Christ. I want to offer myself. I'm going to put on my joys, my fears, all my responsibilities, every, all my friends, my family members. You know, Lord, I'm offering myself. And then after this, leaving here, I want to continue to pour out my life you know, in love to all my people, responsibilities, duties in life. Like, that's the most important thing. That's all we need to do is unite ourselves with that act. And so it's okay if we don't understand words or even if you lose where exactly what the priest is saying and where he is in the offering. <laughs> Mary and then Morgan. Yeah. Um, this is more of a comment. I have yeah. a, a daughter whose priest had gone out ordination and, and then that priest left mm-hmm. and then they went back. Yeah. And it caused such a division in the church. And that would be my only fear, Father. I mean, in 10 years, he could be gone. And we could get somebody else here that would revert things back. Mm -hmm. And it could cause a problem. I don't know. So I think overall, the entirety of the church is moving in that direction. I don't think it matters 
who the Holy Father is or who bishops are, like the momentum of that is is of the Lord, is in that direction. I mean, you can just see it when who, you know, priests, I mean, that's overall. I don't know, I don't, I don't even know what the Mass will look like in 20, 30 years, right? But I, I have no doubt in some, at some point, if the Lord doesn't return, the Holy Spirit will get us the Mass to where the Holy Spirit wants it to be. I, don't, I know for sure, I'm 100, almost 100% sure, your average parish Mass is not where the Holy Spirit wants us to be yet. <laughs> um, but I don't know what the, necessarily the end is and where that happened, but I trust in the Holy Spirit and, and to get that. But I, I do know it's more reverence, more tradition. I almost certainly believe it's, it has to do with Adorantum. I'm not leaving for 35 years. 30 years. <laughs> 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 uh, just, again, going back to keeping in mind Mass as a sacrifice, yeah. it's something that's really helped to me when, in reference to traveling and Mass is changing and different priests come in. Um, when it comes to traveling, it's always kind of a parish roulette. Like, am I going to get a Mass that's reverent? Am I going to get something that's really wonky? Yeah. And that's something that's always given me a lot of peace when traveling is... I want a mass that's as reverent as possible, but if I happen to find a parish that isn't really my cup of tea, as long as it's a Catholic mass, mm-hmm. yep. remembering that yep. it's a sacrifice has really always brought me a lot of peace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Thank you, Mark. David? Well, weren't we perfect then back in the 50s? <laughs> I don't, I, I, no, I truly trust that when the council said that there needed to be some sort of reform that there, there was some truth to that. I, I don't think, I think what happened after the council was very, what do I want to say? Um, they basically put together a committee to develop a new mass, right? So you have this mass that comes all these centuries, very organic in how it comes, you know, versus, okay, let's get a bunch of people together and <laughs> decide these things. Like, it doesn't seem like that's how the mass should. So again, valid everything, yes, but maybe not the most prudent, I would say. Um, the other thing I would say, and Morgan's right on. I think we want to go to every mass and realize it's a mass and accept it, and at the same time realize, though, I think all masses, in a sense, aren't created equally. In this sense, the question is: can, Is mass of infinite worth or finite worth? And I would argue that, in a sense, it's not an infinite worth, the Mass, as far as the blessing grows, right? Because if you offer one Mass, then the world should be perfect, right? So it can't be infinite, right? Therefore, there must be a finite, you know, degree, value of a Mass. And that would seem to me to depend somewhat on how it's offered, <laughs> with what type of love, reverence, right? You have, you know, they used to do like clown Masses. You know, or, or father, you know, walking up there with not even wearing a, 
an out, but maybe a stall, and then he, you know, maybe he plays a song with his guitar. You know, maybe he he's using wooden chalices and stuff. Like we have to think like that's of a, a different value. <laughs> yes, it's a sacrifice. Yes, Christ is being offered. But as far as the value and you got to think it's different than if people really put their heart and souls and do their best to make it as reverent as possible. So I think there is something to that. And that's why we shouldn't just say, oh, you know, let's just show up two minutes before Mass, put everything together. All right, uh, you know, Joe Schmo, why don't you why don't you sing right now and, you know, everything's sloppy. Like, no, I think there is a value to doing it well. Um, at the same time, that makes sense. And it's all about what best signifies, I think, what we're doing here. And that means we should uh, do our best. Uh, it should be, if we have the capability, at least maybe I think like we do here once a week and we use incense to try to use music. Um, I'm fine with having different degrees of masses, more simpler, you know, but always as reverent as possible. It's always been kind of the, the state, right? They used to have low masses or high masses. All right. We've gone pretty long. Any final thoughts, questions? Otherwise, let me know if you have anything later on. You can send me an email or talk to me. But, um, yeah, I need you all to be missionaries of the Eucharist and of the truth and continue to help people understand the Mass, especially as a sacrifice. I think that's so important. And yeah, in a couple of weeks we'll offer Mass Adorantum, so we'll see how that goes. I'm going to I'm gonna start my homily in like every five minutes, every two minutes. This is only this weekend. <laughs> then I'll keep like, what's happening? Only this weekend. Only this weekend. I talked to Bishop. It's only this weekend. Don't worry. Bishop already knows. And the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, everyone. If you could help with these chairs, just put them around the corner in that stand. Except for uh, four of them around these three tables.